Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concepts, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. I'm talking today with Anders Reidstedt, a glassblower and fabricator living and working in Brooklyn. Anders learned to blow glass at the age of 15 in his hometown of Newport, Rhode Island, for a high school job following in the footsteps of both his grandfather and great-grandfather, who had blown glass in Sweden generations before. He has a degree in political science from the University of Vermont, and over the last 20 years has studied glass at Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, Pilchuck Glass School, the Corning Museum of Glass, Penland School of Crafts, and the Orfers Glass School in Sweden. He has fabricated for contemporary artists such as Josiah McElhaney, Martha Friedman, and Mel Chin, and has worked with many renowned designers, including Carolyn Cartwright and Home Studios. Currently, he works as a freelance fabricator and is heavily involved in Urban Glass, a nonprofit glass institution in Brooklyn that offers education, programming, and communal shop access. I think it would be useful for our listeners to kind of hear about the American Studio Glass movement okay. a little bit. Sure. Um, just to give some context into kind of glass blowing coming into the f- more forefront of art making as mm-hmm. opposed to object making, which mm-hmm. is a tough delineation anyway. Yeah. But in the late 50s and early 60s, a uh, um, ceramicist called Harvey K. L- Littleton. Mm-hmm. Um, was teaching at Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison, um, and he traveled to Italy and saw some of the processes. I think he did. I'm not a glass art historian, but mm-hmm. I mean that's the story of uh, the studio glass movement is um, probably the most important story in my work. Like what I've done, it's always coming up, um, and it's definitely how I ended up working in the material without that story. Yeah. It didn't. I didn't end up in glass working with glass because of a factory tradition or something like that. It came from the studio glass movement. Yeah. And Harvey Littleton is one of the godfathers of the whole thing. And and he did end up in Italy. And there's some, but the problem, the interesting thing about him and and the whole movement in general is that it lacked a connection to the factory world. It mm-hmm. is a self-taught, almost completely self-taught, sort of a little bit of the there's. It, it came out of the Midwest, Ohio, Minnesota, um, and 
uh, Toledo specifically. There's another guy there, Labino. There's another guy. They're, cool. they're just sort of like said, we want to use this material and sort of stole a little bit from factories. Yeah. Like somebody worked in a foundry. They stole bricks and made funky, funky equipment. And there's a few successful glass artists that came out of that movement, but um, it and it's spread the taste for to the market. Like it created yeah. the market. Yeah. And Chihuly being sort of the first and most important uh, developers of that market. Dale um, Chihuly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, without that, I wouldn't be doing this at all. It just wouldn't exist. Like my my history with with it just spawned their studios were created all over the country and I, I yeah. was the employee of one of them. Yeah, created so. the demand for your skills. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk through really quickly, um, just in a few minutes, that quick description of like what is involved in blowing glass, just like the sure. basic equipment and from like, I'm going to call it like hot honey, like glowy mm -hmm. liquid glass to just like a thing. Well, I'll start one step further. It's just basically sand that you heat up real hot, uh, over 2000 degrees and with a couple other basic ingredients, uh, turns into liquid glass um, that does behave a lot like honey. And really all you need to do that, it, it's, it's, the chemistry behind it is really complex, but, um, and I don't have a chemistry background, but uh, you have a box that's really well insulated, um, and then you put fire in it. As, and, <laughs> and, you know, engineers get really complicated about it. Where all fun things start. Yeah. Add fire. Yeah, and chemistry happens, and you yeah. this magic... Has, happens and honestly it still feels like magic to me um, but it's in a big coffee cup uh, literally a ceramic pot mm -hmm. and uh, you just keep it hot and you use it up um, as you need it and then you do it again um, you just have a little entrance port in your box stick the blowpipe uh, into the hole and gather out some stuff just like those little honey dippers um, mm -hmm. you have a little rod that uh, you put in the glass and it sticks to the glass metal tends to stick to glass and uh and then the, the system of <clears throat> cooling and heating that blob on the end yeah. is kind of the technical skill of knowing when it how much it's moving how hot it is mm -hmm. yeah so once you take the glass out um you can either work with that one amount or you can continue to add layers like sort of like candle making you continue to dip but the moment you take it out of the pot that heated chamber it immediately starts cooling down, um, and within a minute, it's completely useless to, in terms of form, forming. So you're 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 working against the clock, and gravity is always tugging it. So you're always yeah. turning it. The concept of centering it is a is a big part of it. Centering it on the pipe, um, and then once you've got all the glass you want, then you use the the pipe is hollow, and you apply pressure with your mouth. And it's not very much. Uh, everybody seems to talk about lung strength and lung poisoning yeah. and all this stuff. It's really not that physically hard until you get into really large, heavy objects. But the pressure it takes to blow it up is uh, really minimal. It, it wants to inflate once your uh, moist breath gets into the into the glass. Oh, it expands. Self expands. Yeah. So if you sometimes you like you you might use compressed air to fill up the the object if it really needs a lot of inflation. But it actually kind of struggles because there's not as much moisture. Mm -hmm. um, but and from there, you can shape it a number of ways with tools. You can't touch it with your hands. It's yeah. you know, hovering in the 1600 probably area, 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. So you, there's all these hand tools that separate you from the from the heat, but you still get pretty close and um, you know, within inches of it. It doesn't you know, 
unless it gets really big, like over the size of a, you know, half a couch or something, then it <laughs> yeah. gets really difficult to get near it. But yeah. you know, normal anything you would ever see on a table uh, of normal size, you it's can get with, you can get yeah. within inches. We wear sometimes, occasionally, put a little sleeve on or something, but you can you can get in there and squeeze it. And again, you only have a you know a few moments to to work with it, but it, that's kind of why it takes so long to learn it, is because you got you have to be really direct. You have to think uh, a couple of stages ahead, um, yes. and then a lot of it becomes muscle memory. Um, you just make the motions really quickly. You do two or three things at the same time. It's like being an athlete. There is a lot of athlete sort of athlete meets uh, pianist or something like mm-hmm. the sort of timing and physicality and repetition. They all sort of come together. Yeah. Um, and you got to almost always are working with at least one other person. It's a very group oriented activity, which. Yeah, there's something about the kind of the fact that you need multiple people to do it and the equipment costs that make it such a communal. Yes. Aspect it, of glassmaking. Yeah, especially. Maybe more than a lot of other. Absolutely. The, the equipment cost is a huge uh, startup problem for, for most people. Um, and then even, the, you know, that aside, then just it uses a lot of resources to, to run natural gas, electricity. Yeah. Um, you need a fair bit of space. Like, Burning money. <laughs> yeah. You're, it's, they call it like having a baby, basically. You turn yeah. it on, you're constantly feeding it, and it never grows up. So... Um, it's it's a it it's financially difficult, but that puts a psychological strain on whoever is in charge of it. Here, um, we share. With the, I work basically in a co-op of sorts, like a, yeah. a group studio. A lot of cities have them. And you you call yourself? Um, I'm gonna use the word gaffer. Would yeah, you call I, yourself a gaffer. I, sure, I am a gaffer, uh, meaning that I um, am hired to gaff. Uh, glass or make glass um, for a designer artist. Um, but you're not always a gaffer. Sometimes you're doing your. Own. Yeah. Well, I, I would just the term gaffer is essentially a glass specific word um, that yeah that you know the general public doesn't usually use. So when an artist hires me, they don't yeah. use the term. It's just it's just terminology. But yeah. it, it's heavily used in the glass world. But um, well, the um, I found a great definite. I was trying to find the definition of it. I think I've looked it up. I've, and it's really hard to find because it's yes. only used in the glass world. But the, in 2006, the New York Times, there was an article about glass that defined it as a term for a glass blower who labors around a furnace at the instruction of an artist. That's perfect, yeah. And I was like, that's bo- both perfect and interesting use of gl- the word glass blower, labor, and artist. Like, yeah. It sets up like a funny, very well-defined triangle yeah. of the work the person giving the instruction and the person laboring which is nice because it defines it but also not always that it's it, from what I hear it's not always that clean cut yeah I mean I think that is a, it's a historical word historic word uh, that's still used but um, yeah it's it's very specific it doesn't allow for someone like myself to be involved with the design process or the development of an object in the, in a way. Definitely Gaffer uh, seems to emphasize the disconnect between the mm-hmm. glass maker and the designer or artist. And um, like I was like you asked me, do you always feel like that? I, I think no. It's actually quite rare. Um, yeah. but I do like it. Um, I'm not it's not a negative thing. It's just 
it's like how much of how what range of my brain am I going to use in, yeah. in that day who I'm working with and um, I literally could price accordingly like how much huh. if it's straight gaffer like great uh, then I don't have to inform this person about you know little details of how this object's going to sit on the floor and what it's going to look like in sunlight and so you like, charge more for more creative input or is it m- more funds you charge well less? I'm just it's 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 variable and and you know yeah. uh, more subtle than uh, I don't have a, a strict form a spreadsheet for it you yet. don't have an equation no I mean <laughs> in my mind it's a little gray but I have a number of fees that I charge that are sort of abstract. Usually anybody that I will work with almost always has minimal, I mean, anybody I will make glass for has minimal experience with it. They don't Mm -hmm. often or really ever have like either their own experience using the material, but, or, uh, designing with other quote unquote gaffers. Um, so I have to, inform them a lot about not only technical stuff, but I have to be involved at some level in order for it to be successful, the projects that I'm working on. The design process. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's a big lump of what I do, I think, and that's when I was talking about, like, how much of my brain do I have to use? Like, if, if I'm not involved, you know, in the design process on a, on a pretty, intense level it usually doesn't work out the object is unsuccessful for both of us like yeah it's not like battle yeah i like everything from you know a designer will show up or an artist will show up with a cad drawing and they've in their mind they've already created it and they've neglected all the limitations and the physics, of, the physics and, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and and i understand that it's not a problem you know it's it's just a, it's a, an ignorance of the material that it's not it is really not like other materials and i and it's taken me a lot of time to accept that myself. You know, the basic material, the basic limitations I, I've got, you know, like you can't touch it, but, you know, you can't, like, just because you came up with the idea doesn't mean it, it can or should be done. And yeah. It's just not going to work out. And if you adjust it by 10% at the early stages, it, it can be much more successful. But that often can involve, like, literally the, you know, the concept it can affect the concept from the beginning you know the first you know it was supposed to be a coffee cup and it becomes a teacup kind yeah. of thing and like okay we're making teacups like <laughs> that's don't, okay don't fight the teacup <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you, you know, do you find that conversation where you get a design and you're um, talking through it to be different when you're dealing with designers versus artists yeah I think there are some general differences between the two um, usually artists are much more flexible and I think that's part of what I was saying like they understand that they're even excited about the opportunities that not knowing provide like there's an openness to it um, the successful artists the artists that I've successfully worked with enjoy that back and forth um, and then we develop a relationship that is you know a working relationship that um, is good for both of us and that's yeah. uh, that's when it really gets interesting for me as a gaffer. Um, glass blower. <laughs> I, I actually use the word fabricator because yeah. often I, the times I work with artists, I'm often using other materials as well. Like maybe it's just simply making a jig or a mold that that um, is used as a tool to make the glass object. Mm-hmm. So then I'm in the metal shop, you know, cutting metal, grinding wood or whatever I'm doing yeah. like to assist in the process, which is all glass has some tooling 
Um, and if it's, you know, weird, if it's a weird object that has never been done before, um, I probably have to make some kind of tool for yeah, it. And so then problem solve in lots of, materials. yeah. And, and I'm, that's what I'm good at. That's how I've ended up doing what I'm doing is I like problem solving. I've heard you describe uh, an interest in between a design object and a fine art object that you enjoy thinking about the two different contexts of the object, like where it lives in the end, like being used versus being in a gallery. Mm -hmm. Does that affect the problem solving process? I think it, it's, it lubricates it. The art working in an art makes it easier. Like I'm not fighting the, the, you know, technical, you know, details, thickness versus height and like Mm -hmm. all these little details that make a design object sort of fit the, these sort of stuffy desires of a designer. Not all, they're not all stuffy, but like they're they're usually more specific and it, it, if an artist is looking for a feeling or an emotion, essentially some sort of look that creates an emotion uh, to be simple about it, like it's, it's more, fluid I can just we can get through the process faster yeah and if the concerns aren't detailed because if you usually immediately budget is an issue this is expensive it's an expensive endeavor so if if we can relax about those things we can get in relax about the subtle details of the material like is there a little bubble here is mm-hmm. that a problem like if we can get rid of that then we can I think make a more interesting object quickly and that budget is maintained while yeah. Designer, I'm probably going to have to make more tooling, more um, attempts, essentially, to get it right. And we're not looking for, we're looking for a radius, not you know the right purple. Like, yeah. right, like I'll do do one purple and then do, and it's not right, and then we'll be like just more purple, and then we do more purple, and it's awesome. Like, and if we can have that conversation early, like, what's important here? You know, what are you trying to do? And then they talk about their long story about you know. A vegetable that they want to evoke or whatever it is maybe the project isn't that interesting like I made a a cone for Mel Chin uh-huh. like he, it broke in an installation it was just up at the Queens Museum they were shipping it or installing it and it broke but it was a really big cone and he came over like in a panic and to the studio and had to be done in a couple of days and the museum had the budget to, or insurance or whatever yeah. they were able to we were able to pull it off but he came in and he and he'd made me a full-scale uh, cardboard mock-up of it. And he wrote tons of notes on it. Like, and I saved it. I'm never given it. Like, I, it's such a cool instruction Object. manual. Yeah. Like, and it explains why this is to be that way. And it's just a cone. Like, and like, but more about sort of its connection to the other objects that it was installed with. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of stuff and like honestly he described the meaning of the piece for quite a while to me and it was really entertaining um but you know it was out there it's like yeah some i mean i cosmic guess if you, stuff. if you know the importance of certain as- physical aspects you know what to focus on and what to yeah i feel like conservators yeah. have said the same thing they're like what is the artist's intention so that we know what to concentrate on making exactly the way they want and what can be mm-hmm. switched out because that material's not available anymore or right. it's unstable or not archival. Yeah, he was very flexible in that way. And he, he had been heavily involved with the original piece, but it was made in like the 80s in North Carolina with some hippie glassblowers and they really struggled. And 
And uh, he was really impressed that we were able. He came, he watched, he's like, oh, you guys got this. Like, yeah. it was great. But then, but he put so much effort into explaining. He could have just made a line drawing at one inch and I would have would yeah. have known what he You're meant. You're like, what's the angle? What's the thing? Right. And he, cool. But he came in, he brought all the parts that fit with it and it just was like, it was really cool to work with him. Like, I got, I got a lot out of it um, beyond A, getting paid and B, like, you know, I, making a cone isn't that interesting. What was it, it can just, be. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was really cool and I, I hope to get to work more I also want to mention Martha Friedman, who I work with a lot, and um, fabricating stuff for her, um, who's a local sculptor here in, in Brooklyn, and I've been working with her for years um, in a lot of materials. Um, we just have a good working relationship dialogue, where I get what she wants, and when she doesn't, when she doesn't like it, it's very easy to adjust it or redo it. And but recently, I have been doing more glass. For her and we did a project in uh, for a show she had and I made um, 10 times scale uh, fingers so um, giant giant, giant fingers. fingers and she she got involved in the beginning and made the positive uh, uh, one-to-one scale and then went through the whole process of making the scaling it up making how'd you scale wax. it up you scan um, it she or? originally did a just a plaster imprint of a finger where I guess it was hydrocal then mm-hmm. plaster and then she had it scanned yeah at a atelier in New Jersey or something mm-hmm. probably Johnston Johnston it might have been that yeah. or it may have been somewhere else but and then eventually it was CNC'd out of foam and then uh, worked with another guy uh, this guy Brett um, spacing his last name we worked together uh, Brett and uh, um, <laughs> he was doing the the molds, and then you make a uh, with the wax uh, lost wax process. You make well first they make silicone molds, where you cast a silicone mold around the plaster, mm-hmm. and then uh, pour wax into that silicone mold. Then put the embed the wax wax into plaster. Uh, the final time a, a mix of plaster and sand, mm-hmm. and that becomes the final mold for the glass blowing. Gotcha. And so you blow the bubble into the final mold, and then you just leave the whole mold and the bubble to cool down together exactly. and break yep. away the plaster. And then the plaster is a waste, so you get one shot at it, which at oh, that scale... No pressure. No. Well, it was actually... I would say it was one of the hardest projects I've ever worked on. That was last year. It was, and it took about a year to get the wow. final pieces. I mean, not obviously not every day, but... Uh, uh, she got a grant. She got two grants, actually. One was the Urban Glass Residency, which is, Urban Glass is the cooperative studio that I work at. And, in Brooklyn. Um, in Brooklyn. And uh, it's a great organization. Look it up. Uh, <laughs> um, but she got the residency, which was a year, and so she got to... And I was sort of assigned to her de facto because we've been working together. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really ambitious. I had to. I had to tame it back. She actually wanted to make them bigger, and we maxed out at ten times scale, and that was probably by far as big as we could do it. Uh-huh. And um, we needed six fingers total, and I think we had to make like twenty-five or thirty wow. total to get the six. But and it came so close to everybody giving up. But honestly, the grant allowed it to happen because 
if it was like straight debt, it just we would have all been well. It just wouldn't have made sense. But the combination of the grant and then the facility supporting us, like uh, her, the whole process, uh, it it was able to happen. And I was able to problem solve at a level that I've never yeah. done before. Like you know, sort of long term, longer term solutions. Like let's go back. We actually had to remake the 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 original molds wow. a second time because there was just an angle and it wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. But we had that ability. An angle of the finger? So in the yeah, shoulder. well, just at the top of the finger was a little bit too tight and couldn't get in. And so, But we, that means we had to start all over again, which and I've never been in a project where there's like, okay, let's do that. Yeah. And I had the, working with the right people and it went so well. Like I've, if, I've never been in a project that took so long and then you could adjust it over time and then get a positive result. Artists, if they're, to me, if they're, if, if their work is interesting, even if I don't like it per se, um, they seem to get material. You yes. know, they have an, they have a real experience with material. Yeah. To get and, to the point where they're standing in a hot shop with you, they must have an interest and an understanding of material to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway. they're usually really excited about it. And, uh, I mean, it's pretty yeah. exciting to watch. It's a it's a bit of a curse. They say that about it. It can it you can get uh, caught up in that excitement, caught up mm-hmm. in the in the sh- the sheen, and uh, I think I think that uh, that is in large part a little bit about the studio glass movement, like the market that was created. It was like, oh, look at this shiny stuff, mm-hmm. like, um, and I that doesn't go that far. Ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I've but, heard a. Um, kind of joking term for that kind of glass is pixie vomit because it's like <laughs> I've never heard that yeah. <laughs> it's like sparkly yeah it's colorful yeah. yeah I think my, it's uh, my radar has been amped up you know I'm pretty sensitive to that when it comes up like when somebody comes in or even myself just like you know be careful of the pixie vomit I get, I, I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's it's easy to to grab hold of that and think it's the best but it's it's fun I don't know <laughs> Um, you had chatted with me earlier about um, some situations with uh, lawsuits in the glass world um, kind of stemming out of this team or communal system mm-hmm. that started. Um, one in particular with Del Chihuly, who's a very famous glass blower um, that we mentioned before. Uh, there was a couple of different lawsuits involving copyright and intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And the first one, the most recent one was in 2017, um, where a former employee, uh, Michael Moy, uh, kind of, I think he was uh, suing because he said that the artist's work he had created um, without the artist's input in some instances, and that he was entitled to more credit or more uh, um, money from Mm -hmm. the sales of them. And then before that, I believe in 2006, it was the reverse situation where Del Chihuly, um sued two of his assistants for going on and making work that resembled his too closely. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about those kind of legal I relationships? Mean, I mer- yeah, I mean, when you first asked me to do this podcast, you asked, you know, you brought up that subject matter in a sense like the tension between maker and artist or designer and fabricator and um, the 
the first thing that came up to my mind is just the, the idea of ego. Like, is the ego, you know, or is it is it is it at ease? Are you uncomfortable, you know, working with someone else? Both directions. Like, am, am I as a fabricator uncomfortable? Um, like, because I don't have a say in it or whatever. And and that, that's why I always thought those those legal cases were interesting. I mean, they have a lot of ramification. I remember it was on the front page of the New York Times, the yeah. original one, and I was like, I mean, mostly because I know some of the people that have worked there and at Chihuly's studio, and I've never, I never even imagined that, that something like that could happen where first he would sue for that. But then, you know, I didn't know the details. I'm not out there. I don't know these guys yeah. that well. But um, And then I saw, I looked it up, and I saw the similarity, and they're very similar, you know, the stuff he's making. But... Uh, but if you're trained to make work in a certain way, it can be hard to make it in a different way. Yeah, well, what was sort of unique about the first situation, as far as I understand, was he, the guy that was making, originally making the work for Chihuly, or, or I should say specifically with Chihuly, helped develop those designs yeah. through his own practice, like physical practice of making these objects. Like, they're unique in a way to him, but he was under the system of Chihuly. That's the weird thing. I don't, I'm not, again, I'm, I never worked there, but I do know that he was very specific that everybody that worked with him is like a collaborator, not an employee. Uh, and I, like, in the beginning at least, when he first started, they were, I don't think they were paid. They were able to ooh. use the studio, which is well, worth a yeah. fortune, yeah. and maybe even more. Um, that changed. Now it's a real business, I know that. But um, where there's straight up employees and so on, but at a cert, at, in the beginnings of it, my understanding is that there was more of a, a it was more of a collaborative situation. Yeah. Um, that probably but, changes the legal ramifications too, because if you're an employee, the intellectual property that you're working on, it has a different definition. Your relationship to the intellectual property has a different definition than if you're a freelancer, um, a contractor, or a collaborator. Yeah. I, I don't know much about the legal technicalities of this kind of things. I mean, I often get asked to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements, like, and I'm totally have no problem doing it. I, have, I mean, for me, it's not, it's not. I, I don't have my own practice where I'm selling designs of my own anymore. Yeah. I did that, and it was too hard, so I've gone on to do this. But um, the what Chihuly ended up doing, suing a former collaborator, employee, I don't really know exactly technically what relationship they had. It it was interesting, obviously, that, you know, because it was sort of unprecedented, I believe, like, or it was never taken to that level of court. I think it, I know it went to state supreme. I don't know if yeah, it went, it went further. Yeah, it went pretty high. <laughs> yeah, and I think that notion of intellectual property is really, it's a big deal in the United States. Yeah, uh, I mean, he yeah. sued the two, we'll call them collaborators, they countersued. Right. And then I they think... They settled. They think. settled. Yeah. Um, the defendant, the um, collaborator's lawyer, said something, uh, a really good quote in the article. I think it was in the New York Times article that said, if the first guy who painted Madonna and Child had tried to copyright it, half the Louvre would be empty. Yeah. Which is, I mean, an interesting defense of um, the collaborators, because if... Like, at what level of big picture versus tiny technical detail are we talking is the intellectual property here? If we're yeah. talking broad strokes, like, 
half of glass blowing would be covered by Dale Jahuli's quote unquote. Yeah, and before him, nothing he's done is hasn't been, you know, in broad sense done before. It's all been done before. It's like they all ever that's all I've ever heard and it makes sense if you go to a museum, you see Roman glass, it's all been done. It's a little smaller, a little different. It's been done, yeah. it's been done, it's been done. There's very little new technical innovation, um, but if at all, but uh, that's what I said. It's, I mean, it's money. You know, Julie yeah. is a big company in, if not the biggest by far, like in the United States, it's, it's the it's biggest a, glass yeah, he's operation. A, yeah, he's he's a media company. He puts out books and videos, and mm-hmm. um, it's really impressive. It's a it's a mechanism. Yeah, and it's informed what I do and everybody around anybody who works with glass in the United States is affected by what he has created, and I think that's probably more of where the legal tension comes from, not the notion that like, I mean, Chihuly's entire business for a long time has been hiring other people. He doesn't make any of the glass himself. Not since of, the 70s, Yeah, because right? of his yeah. physical ailments. And, I mean, as well as lots of other artists, you know, they work, they hire people to make their work. Yeah. And I think that's why it was sort of scary or interesting for a moment because the quote-unquote, you know, artist uh, went after somebody who took and run with the ideas and did something yeah. on their own. But he, to be clear, the guy never went out and sold anything under Chihuly's name. It was no. always under his own name. And, and that's why I was like, it didn't make any sense because if someone went out and bought one of the former employees' work, they he wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. No, he wasn't. He, if you wanted it wasn't Chihuly, a forgery. No. It, and, it was... And that's what I thought was really dumb about the lawsuit. And obviously, I don't know all the details, but the big picture is that uh, if someone wants to buy a Chihuly, they're going to want Chihuly. Yeah. Like, they want the pedigree. They want the whole thing. The prominence. I mean, and if someone thinks they can get a deal on a, a Chihuly, that, don't even deal with them. One question I am asking every fabricator for the podcast yeah. is, uh, what is your favorite tool? The newspaper. Um, you fold up New York Times, and it's only New York Times or Wall Street Journal. Um, those are the only two papers that work for whatever reason. The paper type or ink... Um, you fold it up in a kind of into a square, like anywhere between five and ten sheets of it, and soak it in water for a little while, and then you sort of turn it into a catcher's mitt. And um, you can—that's the closest you get to touching the glass. You use it mm-hmm. as a hand shaping tool. It feels like you're shaping uh, clay. Wow. Um, you get to squeeze with your fingers and um, just mash on the glass with your hand and when it's as hot as it can be or even when it's kind of cool it's like it's the closest you get to handling the material so that's why I like it and it um, it has you know like you have a pile of newspaper and then you start reading old newspapers and you read articles that you missed and stuff it's it's got a lot of lore behind it too like sometimes you try to get somebody's face on the part that burns like you try uh-huh. to fold it right so you get Trump's <laughs> head right on the Bernie part like and then you get to burn it a little and show everybody and like there's a lot of fun stuff with it and people pull pranks that is something that people pull pranks on each other in the hot shop I don't know there's a history of that where and the newspaper is a good spot to pull a prank like you might put some bologna inside there oh. or uh, anything kind of that would smell under people put weed in there like to like it gets hot so it's going to steam out and then 
it's not somewhere you, you would normally look for where what that where that stings coming from. So yeah. there's a lot of fun stuff that goes on with the newspaper. Thank you so much to Anders for chatting with me for the Craftsmanship Podcast. If our listeners are interested in any of the grants or shop access mentioned, please visit the Urban Glass website at www.urbanglass.org. A final credit to the Bryce Arzabaglia Quintet for supplying our theme song titled Mount Fuji. Please check in at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com for future episodes.